Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. Big doings in the world of Jude Folly. Now, the biggest of all may be that a friend of mine who is a listener said to me, I always read... F-A-W-L-E-Y, which is Jude's last name, as Folly. And I have been pronouncing it on this podcast and in casual conversations with everybody with whom I am discussing Jude the Obscure, which is literally nobody, I have been pronouncing it Fowley. And I thought her pronunciation may be better, Folly, Folly, like awe, Folly. And I have gotten more than halfway through this novel, perhaps pronouncing our protagonist's name wrong. It's possible, and I like the sound of it better, so I think maybe I will switch over to Folly. And so I have Susan to thank for that. I think she's right. Folly sounds better than Fowley. Well, big doings with Jude Fawley, who has become reacquainted, as was predicted by me years ago, with his erstwhile wife, Arabella. She has returned from Down Under. She has taken a job as a barmaid there in Christminster, where Jude happened upon her. And they have become slightly uh, reacquainted He feels no affection for her at all, but he is in such low spirits about his relationship with Sue, about his dying aunt, about all that has befallen him, that he has agreed to spend a little bit of time with his erstwhile wife, 
And we know nothing about her. We don't know why she has returned from down under, but it's safe to assume that something terrible happened, that she committed some crime of passion. Perhaps she fucked a roo. We don't know. We don't know what happened with Arabella just yet, but she is being somewhat conciliatory and she has agreed to accompany Jude back down to Mary Green to visit the dying aunt. Uh, he was going to go with Sue, but he's going to go with Arabella. Instead, they uh, entered a third-rate inn near the station in time for a late supper. And during the last episode, guest hosted by the hilarious Natasha Legera, we speculated that perhaps in that third-rate inn, when Arabella has subtly made herself available to Jude, that something could happen at that inn. And we know that Thomas Hardy is forever teasing us with sexual escapades, putting his characters in situations where naughtiness may commence. Of course, technically speaking, and legally speaking, Jude and Arabella, our husband and wife, were any naughtiness to commence, it really wouldn't be naughty at all. It would, in fact, be a prescribed function of their marriage. So that's where we left them. That was the end of chapter eight. They entered a third-rate inn near the station in time for a late supper. Now, let's see what happens. Chapter nine. On the morrow, between nine and half past, so apparently nothing happened, because this is also what Thomas Hardy does. He gets us all uh, lubricated, mentally lubricated for some eroticism, and then just dries that shit right up. On the morrow, between nine and half past, they were journeying back to Christminster, the only two occupants of a compartment in a third-class railway carriage. Yes, the night before they had entered a third-rate inn, now they are in a third-class railway carriage. They are a third-class people. That is important. Uh, below third class, there are just, there's just wastrels with their hands out on the street. They don't deserve their own class. Having, like Jude, made rather a hasty toilet to catch the train, Arabella looked a little frowsy, and her face was very far from possessing the animation which had characterized it at the bar the night before. When they came out of the station, she found that she still had half an hour to spare before she was due at the bar. They walked in silence a little way out of the town in the direction of Alfredston. Jude looked up the far highway. Ah, poor feeble me, he murmured at last. What, she said. This is the very road by which I came into Christminster years ago full of plans. Well, whatever the road is, I think my time is nearly up, as I have to be in the bar by eleven o'clock. And as I said, I shan't ask for the day to go with you to see your aunt, so perhaps we'd better part here. I'd sooner not walk up Chief Street with you, since we've come to no conclusion at all. Oh, right. So I guess they weren't going to see the aunt. They were just sort of, they were just sort of, uh, 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 what, uh, talking about how they were going to resolve their differences and, and what and what have you. And he says, very well, but you said when we were getting up this morning that you had something you wished to tell me before I left. So I had two things, one in particular, but you wouldn't promise to keep it a secret. 
I'll tell you now if you promise. As an honest woman, I want you to know it. It was what I began telling you in the night about that gentleman who managed the Sydney Hotel. Arabella spoke somewhat hurriedly for her. You'll keep it close? Yes, yes, I promise, said Jude impatiently. Of course, I don't want to reveal your secrets. Whenever I met him out for a walk, he used to say that he was much taken with my looks, and he kept pressing me to marry him. I never thought of coming back to England again and being out there in Australia, with no home of my own after leaving my father. I at last agreed, and did. What, marry him? Yes. Regularly? Legally? In church? Yes. And lived with him shortly till shortly before I left. It was stupid, I know, but I did. There, now I've told you. <laughs> Don't round upon me. He talks of coming back to England, poor old chap, but if he does, he won't be likely to find me. <laughs> So Jude, who has been tormented by the strictures and boundaries of his own entanglement with Arabella, she obviously felt none of that. She's like, no, I met this guy who wanted to marry him. She wanted to marry him, wanted to marry her. She's like, yeah, cool. <laughs> I mean, I'm in Australia. It's it's halfway across the world. What difference does it make if I marry this dude? And Incidentally, I'm on Arabella's side on this. I mean, what's going to happen, right? So you marry a second dude. You know, you don't know anybody there. And apparently she left her father when she got there because she leaves everybody. She leaves every man she comes in contact with at some point. She'll just take off, strike out on her own. And I suspect she has no female friends either. She's just a wild stallion bucking around. You can't keep her down. Jude stood pale and fixed. Why the devil didn't you tell me last night? He said, well, I didn't. I wouldn't. Won't you make it up with me then? So in talking of your husband to the bar gentleman, you meant him, of course, not me. Of course. Come, don't fuss about it. I have nothing more to say, replied Jude. I have nothing at all to say about the crime you've confessed to. Crime, pooh. They don't think much of such as that over there. Lots of them do it. Well, if you take it like that, I shall go back to him. He was very fond of me, and we lived honorable enough, and as respectable as any married couple in the colony. How did I know where you were? I won't go blaming you. I could say a good deal, but perhaps it would be misplaced. <sighs> what do you want me to do? He's in a peak, so I'm, I'm acting that he is in a peak. What do you want me to do? Nothing. There was one thing more I wanted to tell you, but I fancy we've seen enough of one another for the present. I shall think over what you said about your circumstances and let you know. Thus, they parted. Same old Arabella. Jude watched her disappear in the direction of the hotel and entered the railway station close by. Finding that it wanted three quarters of an hour of the time at which he could get a train back to Alfredston. He strolled mechanically into the city as far as to the four ways where he stood as he had so often stood before and surveyed Chief Street stretching ahead with its college after college in picturesqueness unrivaled except by such continental vistas as the street of palaces in Genoa. <sighs> Let's just reflect for a moment, all of us, shall we? On the street of palaces in Genoa. How we love that street of palaces here on Obscure. Oftentimes when I'm not recording uh, this podcast, what I'm doing is sitting on my reading throne, just idly picturing the street of palaces in Genoa in my mind. Hours can go by like that where I'm just envisioning palace after palace, a whole street of them actually, 
Genoa. I mean, some of the happiest times of my life. Oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to sit here for a minute, just envisioning Genoa, you know, the way I do. And we'll be right back on Obscure. Hi. Yeah, thanks for waiting. I'm ready to continue. I think I'm ready. Let's start again. If you recall, Jude was just thinking about old Italy and all the wonderful streets, the lines of the building being as distinct in the morning air as in an architectural drawing. But Jude was far from seeing or criticizing these things. They were hidden by an indescribable consciousness of Arabella's midnight contiguity a sense of degradation at his revived experiences with her, of her appearance as she lay asleep at dawn, which set upon his motionless face a look as of one accursed. If he could only have felt resentment towards her, he would have been less unhappy, but he pitied while he contemned her. So wait, this is unclear to me. They slept together? In the fulsome sense of the word, did they, as the Brits say, do it? He lay and watched her sleeping. He It seems to me he was in bed with her. They had no real reason to share a hotel. Is that what happened in that third-rate seedy hotel? And if so, why didn't Hardy just come out and say it? I understand it's Victorian literature. They have a hard time going wacka, 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 but... In fairness, it was unclear what had happened. Jude turned and retraced his steps. Drawing again towards the station, he started at hearing his name pronounced, less at the name than at the voice. Oh, no. To his great surprise, no other than Sue stood like a vision before him. Her look bodeful and anxious as in a dream, her little mouth nervous, and her strained eyes speaking reproachful inquiry. Oh, Jude, I am so glad to meet you like this, she said in quick, uneven accents not far from a sob. Then she flushed as she observed his thought that they had not met since her marriage. They looked away from each other to hide their emotion, took each other's hand without further speech, and went on together a while, till she glanced at him with furtive solicitude. I arrived at Alfredson Station last night, as you asked me to, and there was nobody to meet me. But I reached Mary Green alone, and they told me Aunt was a trifle better. I sat up with her, and as you did not come all night, I was frightened about you. I thought that perhaps when you found yourself back in the old city, you were upset at at thinking I was married and not there as I used to be, and that you had nobody to speak to, so you had tried to drown your gloom as you did at that former time when you were disappointed about entering as a student and had forgotten your promise to me that you would never again, and this, I thought, was why you hadn't come to meet me. So, in expressing her worries, she's basically just throwing all his shitty behavior on him, right? She's just saying, here's all the terrible things that you have done in the past that I know about. And so those are the things that I was worried that you did. I was worried that you, that you were weak and that you drank. And you remember that time that you humiliated yourself in front of me, even though I am a perfect angel of God. That's the kind of shit she does all the time. This passive aggressive bullshit. 
And then he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't even get it. And he's like, and you came to hunt me up and deliver me like a good angel. I thought I would come by the morning train and try to find you in case, in case, meaning in case you were laying dead in a gutter somewhere with the name Sue Bridehead on his lips. Because as a narcissist, she can only think in terms of herself. I did think of my promise to you, dear, continually. I shall never break out again as I did, I am sure. I may have been doing nothing better, but I was not doing that. I loathe the thought of it. I am glad your staying had nothing to do with that. But, she said, the faintest pout entering her tone, you didn't come back last night and meet me as you engaged to. I didn't. I am sorry to say I had an appointment at nine o'clock too late for me to catch the train that would have met yours or to get home at all. Looking at his loved one as she appeared to him now in his tender thought, the sweetest and most disinterested comrade that he had ever had living largely in vivid imaginings. So ethereal a creature that her spirit could be seen trembling through her limbs. He felt heartily ashamed of his earthiness in spending the hours he had spent in Arabella's company. Well, that earthliness can only mean one thing, you guys. Okay? I think we've confirmed, okay, what those guys were doing. There was something rude and immoral in thrusting these recent facts of his life upon the mind of one who to him was so incarnate as to seem at times impossible as a human wife to any average man. God, Jude. God. I, you know, this is a hallmark, I think, of Victorian literature, the idea of the woman as the ethereal creature, the, the angel who kind of flies above the Madonna whore thing, right? We have our whore and now we have our Madonna, but our Madonna here is so kind of cheap and tawdry. And, you know, she flies around on wings she bought at Party City, right? For, uh, you know, for some shitty party she was going to. I can't tell if Hardy believes this or if it's just Jude. I think it's just Jude. I think Hardy knows Sue better than this. He knows that she doesn't deserve his accolades, that she is in fact just a lady uh, with lady foibles and lady problems. And maybe that is in some sense uh, a, a measure of his sympathy for her that he does not allow Jude to see her just as a as a human lady, because if he did, his infatuation with Sue would be lessened in some respects, but perhaps it would be more deserving in others because he would see her for who she is, which is just a mixed up crazy kid. She's just a mixed up crazy kid who's kind of hot and knows it. That's all. And, you know, she would have the most annoying Instagram account. Right. She would have one of those annoying Instagram accounts where it's like, you know, there's a picture of her where she's like, just made brownies. And, you know, she'd have like a smudge of brownie on the outside of her lip, but she'd be wearing this like plunging T-shirt and she'd be perfectly made up and she'd be like, oops, all of all of her Instagram captions would involve some version of the word oops, but there's nothing oopsie about it. She's the kind of chick who takes 50 pictures to get the perfect one to go, oops. 
that Sue Bride had. It was something rude and immoral at times. Uh, it was so incarnate as to see at times impossible as a human wife to any average man. And yet she was Phillotson's. How she had become such, how she lived as such, passed his comprehension as he regarded her today. You'll go back with me, he said. There's a train just now. I wonder how my aunt is by this time. And so, Sue, you really came on my account all this way. And what an early time you must have started, poor thing. Yes, sitting up watching alone made me all nerves for you. And instead of going to bed when it got light, I started. And now you won't frighten me like this again about your morals for nothing. He was not so so sure that she had been frightened about his morals for nothing. Well, no. He released her hand till they had entered the train. I mean, there's nothing wrong with his morals. He fucked his wife. I mean, that's what, you know, husband and wife do. At least so I hear. It seemed the same carriage he had lately got out of with another, where they sat down side by side, Sue between him and the window. He regarded the delicate lines of her profile and the small, tight, apple-like convexities of her bodice, so different from Arabella's amplitudes. (laughs) Though she knew he was looking at her, she did not turn to him, but kept her eyes forward, as if afraid that by meeting his own some troublous discussion would be initiated. So, Sue... You are married now, you know, like me, and yet we have been in such a hurry that we have not said a word about it. There's no necessity, she quickly returned. Oh, well, perhaps not, but I wish. Jude, don't talk about me. I wish you wouldn't, she entreated. It distresses me rather. Forgive my saying it. (sighs) Where did you stay last night? So she doesn't want to talk about her marriage. That's how well that's going. She's been married for, what, a week? And and it's it is she's so joyous in her union that she begs him not to talk about him. Things are going great. She had asked the question in perfect innocence to change the topic. He knew that and said merely at an inn, though it would have been a relief to tell her of his meeting with an unexpected one. But the latter's final announcement of her marriage in Australia bewildered him, lest what he might say should do his ignorant wife in injury. Their talk proceeded, but awkwardly, till they reached Alfredston. That Sue was not as she had been, but was labeled Phillotson, paralyzed Jude, whenever he wanted to commune with her as an individual. Yet she seemed unaltered, he could not say why. There remained the five-mile extra journey into the country, which it was just as easy to walk as to drive, the greater part of it being uphill. Jude had never before in his life gone that road with Sue, though he had with another. Yeah, Arabella. You could have said it just Arabella. It was now as if he carried a bright light which temporarily banished the shady associations of the earlier time. Sue talked, but Jude noticed that she still kept the conversation from herself. 
At length he inquired if her husband were well. Oh, yes, she said, he is obliged to be in the school all the day or he would have come with me. He is so good and kind that to accompany me he would have dismissed the school for once, even against his principles, for he is strongly opposed to giving casual holidays, only I wouldn't let him. I felt it would be better to come alone. Aunt Drusilla, I knew, was so very eccentric, and his being almost a stranger to her now would have made it irksome to both. Since it turns out that she is hardly conscious, I am I'm glad I did not ask him. <laughs> oh, Sue, you're such a fucking liar. You're just a liar. I mean, yes, he doesn't know her. And yes, it would be weird if some dude was like hovering over his aunt's deathbed. But that's not why you said don't come. And it's not that you care about the students. That's not why you said don't come. It's because you wanted to be alone with Jude because you wanted to see him adoring you. Oops. Oops. Is Jude adoring me? (laughs) Better post that to my snap. Jude had walked moodily while this praise of Phillotson was being expressed. Mr. Phillotson obliges you in everything as he ought, he said. Of course, you ought to be a happy wife. And of course I am. Bride, I might have almost said as yet, it is not so many weeks since I gave you to him. And yes, I know, I know. (laughs) There was something in her face which belied her late assuring words, so strictly proper and so lifelessly spoken that they might have been taken from a list of model speeches in The Wife's Guide to Conduct. Jude knew the quality of every vibration in Sue's voice, could read every symptom of her mental condition, and he was convinced that she was unhappy, although she had not been a month married. But her rushing away thus from home to see the last of a relative whom she had hardly known in her life proved nothing. For Sue naturally did such things as those. No, she does not. And Jude, is, and by the way, is loving this. Jude is loving turning the screw to her. All he wants is for her to be unhappy. I mean, he wants her to be happy, but only if it's with him. Well, you have my good wishes now, as always, Mrs. Phillotson. And just the words, Mrs. Phillotson, is just him turning the screw. She reproached him by a glance. No, you are not, Mrs. Phillotson, murmured Jude. You are dear, free Sue Bridehead. Only you don't know it. Wifedom has not yet squashed up and digested you in its vast maw as an atom which has no further individuality. Sue put on a look of being offended till she answered, Nor has husband done you, so far as I can see. But it has, he said, shaking his head sadly. When they reached the lone cottage under the firs between the brown house and Mary Green in which Jude and Arabella had lived and quarreled, he turned to look at it. A squalid family lived there now. He could not help saying to Sue, that's the house my wife and I occupied the whole of the time we lived together. I brought her home to that house. She looked at it. That to you was what the schoolhouse at Shaston is to me. Ooh. Well, that's just 
telling everything right there, isn't it? This squalid little house, this miserable little hovel in which he was forced to spend days with somebody with whom he did not care. But having to keep up the pretense, that is what the schoolhouse is in Shaston for Sue. So she is just as unhappy in her marriage as Jude was and continues to be in his. These are two miserable people in miserable marriages. And the reason is because neither of them could ever be free enough to discuss their true feelings for each other. Yes, but I was not very happy there as you are in yours. So he's just turning the screw, turning the screw. If he really knows every vibration in her voice, he knows exactly what she's saying and he's punishing her. He is now being the sadist. She is now receiving his pain. The roles have reversed. She closed her lips in retortive silence and they walked some way till she glanced at him to see how he was taking it. Of course, I may have exaggerated your happiness. (laughs) One never knows. He continued blandly. Oh, now he. Okay, I, I have to say, this is a Jude that I like a lot. This is a Jude torturing Sue, and I prefer him to the Jude who is being tortured. And by the way, I prefer Sue getting tortured. I prefer that she is getting a taste of her own medicine right now. She needs it. I think it will do her some good. They're in this terrible relationship, the two of them, where they're can be no equality. Somebody's always up. Somebody's always down. Somebody's getting the shit kicked out of them. Somebody's doing the shit kicking. That's just who they are. They both seem to get an enormous amount of pleasure out of it for some reason. I think we all know people in those relationships. At least now, it is starting to have the semblance of balance, which I think, you know, was really bugging me about Jude the Wet Noodle is that he was just kind of taking it. But now he can lord it over her. He can lord her own misery over her. Don't think that, Jude, for a moment, even though you may have said it to sting me, he's as good to me as a man can be and gives me perfect liberty, which elderly husbands don't do in general. He's 45. If you think I am not happy because he's too old for me, you are wrong. I don't think anything against him to you, dear. And you won't say things to distress me, will you? I will not. (laughs) I'm sorry, they're funny. They are funny people bound together. He said no more, but he knew that from some cause or other in taking Phillotson as a husband, Sue felt that she had done what she ought not to have done. That's never a good sentiment right? After you've gotten married, especially then. I mean, now you, you run down to the post office, you get yourself a quickie divorce. They sell them in vending machines down there. But now, not back then, you couldn't, you couldn't do that. All right, let's take a little break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Obscure. We're just going to read a little more of Part 3, Chapter 8. They plunged into the concave fields on the other side of which rose the village, the fields wherein Jude had received a thrashing from the farmer many years earlier. On ascending to the village and approaching the house, they found Mrs. Edlin standing at the door, who, at sight of them, lifted her hands deprecatingly. "'She's downstairs, if you'll believe me,' cried the widow. "'Out of bed she got, and nothing could turn her. "'What will come at, I do not know.'" On entering, there indeed by the fireplace sat the old woman, wrapped in blankets, blankets, and turning upon them like a countenance like that of Sebastiano's Lazarus. She has risen from the dead, this woman. They must have looked their amazement, for she said in a hollow voice, Ah, scared ye have I. I wasn't going to bide up there no longer to please nobody. "'Tis more than flesh and blood can bear "'to be ordered to do this and that by a feather "'that don't know half as well as you do yourself. "'Ah, you rue this marrying as well as he,' "'she added, turning to Sue. <laughs> "'She's basically like an old witch from Macbeth, "'like cursing Sue's marriage <laughs> "'simultaneously cursing Jude's. "'All our family do, and nearly all everybody else's. <laughs> You should have done as I did, you simpleton, and fillets in the schoolmaster of all men. Would Meady marry him? <laughs> God, she's just like a wraith from hell. She gets up out of bed on her deathbed to just shit on Sue, which frankly I love. What makes most women marry, aunt? Ah, you mean to say you love the man? I don't mean to say anything definite. Do you love him? Don't ask me, aunt. I can mind the man very well. A very civil, honorable liver. But, Lord, I don't want to wound your feelings. But there be certain men here and there that no woman of any niceness can stomach. I should have said he was one. I don't say so now, since you must have known better than I. But that's what I should have said. She jumped up and went out. She jumped up? She was dying yesterday. She was dying. She was in and out of consciousness yesterday. Now she's at the fireplace. She's jumping up. She's running around. She's giving life lessons. She's saying you shouldn't have married Phillotson. He was one that nobody nice would marry. We don't quite know why yet. But so she jumped up and went out. Jude followed her and found her in the outhouse crying. Don't cry, dear, said Jude in distress. She means well, but is very crusty and queer now, you know. 
Oh, no, it isn't that, said Sue, trying to dry her eyes. I don't mind her roughness one bit. What is it, then? It is that what she says is, is true. <sighs> what, what, what? That, that there's something, there's some fatal flaw with Phillotson. What could it be? God, what? You, you don't like him, asked Jude. I don't mean that, she said hastily, that I ought, perhaps I ought not to have married. He wondered if she had really been going to say that at first. They went back, and the subject was smoothed over, and her aunt took rather kindly to Sue, telling her that not many young women newly married would have come so far to see a sick old crone like her. In the afternoon, Sue prepared to depart, Jude hiring a neighbor to drive her to Alfredston. "'I'll go with you to the station if you'd like,' he said. She would not let him. The man came round with the trap, and Jude helped her into it, perhaps with unnecessary attention, for she looked at him prohibitively. "'I suppose I may come see you some day when I am back again at Melchester?' he half-crossly observed. She bent down and said softly, "'No, dear, you are not to come yet. I don't think you are in a good mood.' "'Very well,' said Jude." Goodbye. Goodbye. She waved her hand and was gone. Goodbye. Goodbye. She's right. I won't go, he murmured. <laughs> oh, they're, so, they're, they're just pathetic. They're just pathetic. <laughs> they're both in unhappy marriages. Apparently, she's married some kind of monster. We don't quite know why yet, but he there's something with him. And so we'll leave it at that. We'll 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 leave it with this this growing misery in Jude the Obscure. It's it's the misery we we all crave. It's the misery that gives this book life. It's it's the crossed signals, the unsaid things, all of the longings that we all feel for those and we cannot express them for whatever reasons we have in our lives we've had quite a little journey here on obscure today we've been with arabella we've been with sue we've seen her misery compounded by her not even month-long marriage we've seen jude turning the screw at her we've seen an amazing miraculous recovery by the aunt drusilla we've seen so much and progressed so little but that seems to be the nature of this book and perhaps of life in general. So we'll leave it there and we'll pick it up again next time on another curious, thrilling, erotic, masochistic episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at mineral.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black.
This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aquí Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aquí Presents. <laughs>